Hey everybody, it's David Green here. I am your host here on Left, Right, and Center. And we are in a place that was essential to the fight for American democracy, the city of Boston, Massachusetts. And we are joined by a fabulous live audience uh, at the public radio station here that is near and dear, WBUR. Thank you all for being here. We really, really appreciate it. Um, I'm here along with our regular Left, Right, and Center panel to look at some of the pillars of our democracy. Of course, a democracy that was forged right here in Boston. I don't have to tell any of you, some of the pillars remain under threat today. So with me, Moa Lathy, Executive Director at Georgetown's Institute of Politics and Public Service. He was Communications Director for the Democratic National Committee and an advisor to Hillary Clinton when I met Mo. And also Sarah Isger, Senior Editor at The Dispatch, a lawyer and was spokesperson at the Department of Justice under President Trump. Um, thank you two for being here as always. This is quite a journey we're on together. It really is. And what a cool space and a great crowd to have this conversation. Yeah, it's really cool. Yeah. This is City Space at WBUR, and it is one of my favorite venues in, in the country. So WBUR is one of the best stations in America. I, I loved listening to this all the time when I lived here. This was like a companion. Well, from that to saving <laughs> democracy. Um, so the, uh, the, the pillar of democracy that I want to start with uh, on, on this week's show is our legislative branch. Um, specifically the House of Representatives. It's, it's, it was three weeks now since former Speaker Kevin McCarthy was removed from the role, and efforts to replace him, I would say, have been kind of embarrassing, um, making you wonder if anyone is running, running the House of Representatives. If, in case you haven't been keeping up with this, Steve Scalise dropped out before he could face a vote, believing he was making the way for a more popular nominee in Ohio's Jim Jordan. Jordan lost his first two floor votes, appeared open to a plan to empower the Speaker pro tempore, Representative Patrick McHenry of North Carolina. Jordan bucked those reports, pushed for an unsuccessful third vote. In a secret vote late last week, Jordan was ousted. House Republicans had nominated Majority Whip Tom Emmer of Minnesota, but Emmer's nomination also didn't make it to a floor vote. And, you know, at one point it seemed like it might take a moment of divine intervention for a speaker to actually get announced. Just like the candidates before him, Minnesota Congressman Tom Emmer could not get the vote. Emmer is the number three Republican in the House. He beat out seven other candidates in a secret ballot and was the nominee for only about four hours. I said there's only one person that can do it all the way. You know who that is? Jesus Christ. If Jesus came down and said, I want to be speaker, he would do it. Other than that, I haven't seen, I haven't seen anybody that can guarantee it. So in the end, it is not Jesus Christ who is the new Speaker of the House. Um, just a few hours short of a full 22 days, a speaker was announced. It's Representative Mike Johnson of Louisiana, who was elected Speaker of the House by a vote of 220 to 209. This has been an insane journey. Sarah, how do you reflect on this moment for the Republican Party and our democracy? You know, if you think of the last seven or eight or so years as a reality television show each year, sort of a new season. Um, they bring back some old characters that you didn't really want to have come back. Um, but they have these new plot lines every now and then that you're like, wow, yeah, I guess so. Um, this was a, a really good new plot line, I thought, for that larger story about dysfunction. Um, look, Congress has been dysfunctional for quite some time. This was a new type of dysfunction. And I think some of the problem is that because there's not a lot of pressure from American voters for Congress to actually legislatively fix problems, 
that then it's sort of like, okay, well, what are they doing there? Like when you become a member of Congress, did you just basically like win a spot on a reality TV show? Because that's feels like what they're spending a lot of their time doing is going on cable news, sitting on Twitter, raising money on social media. So does it really even matter that we didn't have a speaker for three weeks? I don't think a lot of regular Americans were like looking, you know, checking in every day going like, oh my God, the House of Representatives doesn't have a speaker. How will they ever pass comprehensive immigration reform this week? Like I thought they would. Um, <laughs> so in, in that sense, it, it was almost more depressing that it didn't matter very much because I think it highlights how broken that branch is because at this point, right, when something really bad happens and you want a fix, you think that your government should fix it. Very little are people even looking to Congress to fix it. They expect the president to fix it. They expect the executive branch to fix it. And then the president, you know, is like, Hey Congress, can you fix it? And Congress is like, la 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 fingers and ears. And so then the president's like, all right, I'll do it through executive action. Someone sues, it goes to the courts and the courts are like, yeah, you can't, the president can't do that. You have to have legislation. But of course the headline just reads court strikes down thing that we all wanted. And we're like, stupid courts, they're the worst. Okay, so this is a low. This feels like a low point. In, I mean, if, if expectations were so low that everyone was like, "We don't care that we don't have a speaker of the house," that's that's bad. It's not good. No, that's bad. Yeah. No, look. First of all, was it was it was it Will Rogers who once said, "You know, I'm not a member of any organized political party. I'm a Democrat." <laughs> it's, it's, it's as if the Republican Party looked at him and said, "Here, hold our beer." Right? Like, <laughs> like this was an embarrassing moment for our two-party system. It was an embarrassing moment for the people's house. And yeah, I agree with Sarah. Most people aren't sitting around uh, wondering what, you know, when they're going to get back to work to do the thing. And frankly, now that they're back at work, I'm not sure they're really reassuring people. I saw somewhere that uh, among the things that they did today were a resolution to censure three different members of the house. Right. That there were three different resolutions by one side to censure someone. on. So like after all of this, they went back to work to now officially start sniping at one another again. <laughs> Don't worry, so, Mo. I'm sure they'll rename some post offices also. And, you know, it is this whole thing started because the Republican conference did not like the fact that then Speaker McCarthy worked with Democrats at the end of the day to keep the government from shutting down for 45 days. They then spent three weeks going through this saga, which means we only have a couple more weeks before we have to figure this out again. And after watching how the last three weeks went, I'm not filled with confidence that the caucus is going to be able to come together in any unified way to represent a particular perspective. Like, I think it's just going to be messy, and I'm more concerned about a government shutdown now than I was before. But aren't Democrats sort of enjoying holding the beer? I mean, do they have any incentive to clean up this mess in some way or help make the Congress and, and our country run more smoothly. It, it feels I, like I always, this is politically beneficial. And, and I know there's been this argument where a lot of Democrats have said, like, why is it on us to, like, fix the Republicans problems? But there are moments during this where Democrats could have said, like, let's put country first and, and you know, get the votes to support yeah, one I, of these. I, I always love this question, because 
one of the things we kept hearing over and over from Republicans over the past couple weeks was any effort to work with Democrats was a non-starter for them. That any effort to reach across and pull Democrats into the solution was a non-starter for them. So I always think it's ironic when people are like, we don't want to do anything that requires a single Democratic vote. And then everyone looks at Democrats and says, why aren't you helping them? Why aren't you saving them? So, I, no, I don't think it's, it's a situation anybody really wants to be in. And look, what I think this is reflective of is just a much larger problem with the two parties today and with the institution today. Sarah and I, we've talked about this on the show a number of times. Um, you know, our politics, I think, has moved away from the left versus right axis that has defined it since the birth of the republic to two completely different axes. One, sort of front versus back, those who feel like they're stuck at the back of the line versus those who are at the front of the line and the power structures that are helping them. And secondly, and this is what we really saw, and they're connected. Secondly, what we just saw play out over the past few weeks and is becoming more and more of an issue, I feel like, every day, institutionalists versus non-institutionalists. And we saw that play out here where back and forth, right? I mean, it took them four tries to get the guy, but each side on that divide just went back and forth tanking the preferred candidate of the other side. There's a group of people in the House who don't care that this is embarrassing, who don't care that this shut the House down, who don't care that we may be barreling towards a government shutdown, because that's not why they're there. They are there specifically to burn the House down, to burn the institutions down, and to get some great Twitter exposure along the way. So, David, I, this is my very simple explanation. Neither party's members, by and large, benefit from being in the majority anymore. The reason to want to be in the majority is to get legislation to passed and to govern. And frankly, I'm going to blame the voters. All of you in this room, I think, are voters. That's why you're here. You probably vote. And Hi. it's their fault. You're saying it's this their is all their fault. fault. It's literally. Yeah. Thanks a lot, Boston. Yeah, really yeah, appreciate Thanks. And just appreciate this that. group, frankly, just uh -huh. only the people in this room. Um, should we just leave it there or should we actually yeah, tell so them why it's their the fault? The OK, uh, look, it's it's your fault. And it's your fault because you've been rewarding people who aren't legislating. And so what happens is if you have a primary between two people and you're not rewarding the one who legislates, then you're just rewarding the talking and the saying and the yelling. And so you then uh, have members of Congress who are replacing former legislators, the people who actually wanted to govern, with the best people at the talking and the yelling on, on social media and the raising small dollars. Well, guess how you raise small dollars? By making people angry, by telling them everything that's wrong, by outraging them. You don't really get very outraged by, well, I reached this compromise with this other guy and we have 17 co-sponsors and guess what? The bill's moving right along. And have you seen uh, Schoolhouse Rock? So slowly but surely, Congress is turning over from legislators who had their own problems, right? I get why people were mad at the compromisers. They felt like the compromises weren't the ones they wanted to have made. That's what voters are there to do is to give that message back. But at the same time, 
we now are increasingly, you know, it's sort of like grass in your yard. It's being replaced by clover. And once that clover hits a tipping point, the whole thing turns to clover in your yard. And it's really hard to get rid of clover. And yes, I'm speaking about my yard and I'm sorry to my neighbors. But but uh, the yard of Congress, like, I mean, we've now reached a point where we have a, a new speaker of the House yeah. who denied the results of right. the yeah. last presidential right. election. And right. not just that, won't talk about it. <laughs> Like we have one of the most important leaders in our country now who denied a presidential election. And like, I mean, please show us in the media and voters the respect to actually talk about it if you're now in a position of leadership. And that that's where I'm troubled. I'm like, okay, if this if this is the guy and if like, you know, he might lead us to somewhere better and show that the legislative branch can operate. But why, why do that? Like, why would you want to be in the majority? Why not be in the minority? Because being in the minority is the job to complain, to outrage, to say what the other side's doing wrong. What's the incentive to stay in the majority? I think what we see in the house right now is, you know, I often get asked, you know, don't you think this, our, our politics would get a lot better if we just broke up the two party system and had, you know, a multi-party system. We do. And that's what we've been seeing in the House right now. We do have a multi-party system. This, what we, this is what a multi-party parliamentary system looks like in, in a lot of ways mm-hmm. without the infrastructure to support it. And that's where the gridlock came, right? In a multi-party uh, parliamentary structure, you can reach out and you can start to build coalitions. Here, we've got we've got multiple parties trapped within the old party structure, the old party system, and that leads to complete and total gridlock. Donald Trump defeated the Republican Party before he defeated the Democratic Party back in 2016. And ever since then, the Republican Party has been trying to figure out what that means for itself. We all focus on Trump himself because he's still around. He's still in the picture. But what we were just witnessing and will continue to witness in the House is what that struggle is going to look like without Trump's name on a ballot. What is the Republican Party moving forward? It is no longer simply the party that was advocating for less government, right? I mean, for most of the history of of our republic, the central question that we have grappled with is what is the appropriate size and scope of government with the Republican Party arguing it should be more limited, the Democratic Party arguing it should be more activist, right? Almost been going on for a while. Ever since the birth of the Republic when we had the Federalists and the Non-Federalists. That's not the fight we're hearing within the Republican Party right now. It is more of this institutionalist versus non-institutionalist. It is sort of this people at the front of the line versus people at the back of the line that's defining modern day populism. And, but Mo, and, there's also and, just, there's like non-ideological people, right? The, yeah. the Many of the people who voted to oust McCarthy in the first sure. place, you'd be hard pressed to find the ideological reason. You pointed to the shutdown. Uh, y- yes, th- that might be like a but for cause, as we say in law. Right. But like... Matt Gates doesn't have like an ideology. He, he was just looking for the thing. Although I do think he's one of these guys who's a non-institutionalist. He doesn't care about the institution unless sure. that institution is Twitter. Yeah. Like, no, but think of it. <laughs> Absolutely. But think of how much money Matt Gates has raised in the last three weeks. That's what I mean about the incentive structure. A hundred percent agree with but that. But give it, given all of this, I want to read you, I want to read you a quote. Here's the quote. I think all the American people had great pride in this institution, but right now that's in jeopardy. We have a challenge before us right now to rebuild and restore that trust. 
That's the new Speaker of the House. Okay. Well, first of all, Congress's approval rating was like at 13% before. Right, so that's right. people who didn't like, who fell asleep and like hit the wrong so, button on their keyboard I'm gonna or take something. This, I'm going to take this new Speaker at his word for the moment and think like, okay, you want to rebuild trust. Okay. Um, how, how do you both think trust can be rebuilt? Yeah. So once again, I just want to keep blaming voters. Um, <laughs> and I'm, I'm just going to do that. So like when you see polling where you ask voters, um, you know, do you believe that uh, compromise is a you know important part of governing or whatever? And like 80 percent will say yes. And then you ask them, would you vote for someone who compromises on the things you care about? Absolutely not. Um, so, look, you want to build trust vote for people who compromise. Because if you want to restore trust in the institution, the institution has to do stuff, not just be a spectacle of dysfunction. It starts with people wanting to elect leaders who Correct. will compromise. And if that's not they want to keep right their jobs, I don't know why, because honestly, it looks like being a member of Congress really sucks. Um, but they care a lot about keeping their jobs. If their jobs are in jeopardy for being dysfunctional, they will respond differently. They will behave differently. If anyone has a toddler out there, right? Like incentives really matter with this stuff. Um, but voters are sending them the message that in fact, the opposite is true. If you uh, have a speaker of the house who got a single democratic vote, that you're going to lose your job. If you vote for that speaker as well, that's not their dysfunction. I mean, it is, don't get me wrong. Like they're yo-hos, but like, that's your dysfunction as voters quit voting for the people who do that. I, I can't disagree with any of that. I mean, it, <laughs> you guys suck. Yeah. Thanks, Thanks for coming, coming to our podcast. We <laughs> look, we incentivize bad behavior because it makes us feel good. Oh, it does. Feel right. Good. Oh, it makes us so feel good, to, good right. to watch the this outrage. Getting a little scary up Hold here. On, I mean, to watch <laughs> the outrage on cable news, to give $25 to the person who voices my anger. Right. I love that. What if I gave $25, though, to the person who actually found the solution, the person who actually did something to to turn the temperature down just a little bit? What if I gave $25 to five centrist Democrats and five centrist Republicans or forget Ooh. the centrist, right? Just five people who came together and got a bill passed because no one's giving them the $25. They're giving it to the outrage machine. I will be back with Mo Lathy, Sarah Isger, and we're going to talk about uh, President Biden's vision for national security and how he has been tying that to defending democracy. You're listening to Left, Right, and Center. You're hearing civilized yet provocative opinions from across the political spectrum. Now we need to know what you think. Tweet us at LRCKCRW. Okay, we are back again with Left, Right, and Center here in Boston at WBUR. I'm your host, David Green. Moa Lathy is with me. He's executive director at Georgetown University's Institute of Politics and Public Service. Sarah Isger is here as always. She's a lawyer, senior editor at The Dispatch, and former spokesperson at the Department of Justice under President Trump. Let's talk about President Biden um, and foreign policy as we continue this theme of looking at what democracy means today, the pillars of democracy here in the city of Boston, where the fight for democracy played out many years ago. So President Biden went to Israel last week. He returned to the U.S., addressed the nation from the Oval Office, and he tied the crisis in the Mideast to the war in Ukraine. And I, I just want to listen to a few moments from that speech. Hamas and Putin represent different threats, but they share this in common. They both want to completely annihilate a neighboring democracy, completely annihilate it. 
American alliances will keep us, America, safe. American values are what make us a partner that other nations want to work with. To put all that at risk, if we walk away from Ukraine, if we turn our backs on Israel, it's just not worth it. So Biden called this current moment an inflection point in history. The president stressed the importance of maintaining support for Ukraine in its war against Russia, as well as Israel's fight to eradicate Hamas. And he also tied the conflicts together in this huge request for $106 billion in supplemental funding, including $60 billion for Ukraine, $14 billion for Israel, $13 billion for the border. There was also money for Taiwan, which remains under threat from the Chinese government. And the president, I think what really caught my attention was how he tied the continued health of our own democracy to this idea of protecting democracy overseas. This is, of course, a role that America has occupied since World War II. But as the world continues to, to change, and as we talk of, about some of the you know, changing politics at home and sort of changing dynamics in terms of what voters want, you know, you know I just start to, to wonder if the kind of thing that President Biden is talking about, you know, let's fight for our democracy at home and let's promote democracy abroad as, as so central in, in our foreign policy. I mean, is, is that resonating with American voters in the same way that, that it might have in, you know, 10, 20, 30 years ago? Um, I think he's right to do it because I think he's right that it's not just this thing that's happening in faraway lands. Western style democracy writ large is facing phenomenal stress tests across the West, across the globe. And while we're all facing these stresses, authoritarian regimes are getting stronger and they are banding together. Right. What have we seen in recent weeks? We've seen Russia and China cozying up to one another. Iran popping its head up. A delegation from Hamas showing up in Moscow this past week to meet with Russian officials. This is a growing tension between democracies and authoritarianism in a way that we haven't seen in decades. And so the president is right I think, to try to make that case. Will it resonate? I don't know. Now, a lot of people didn't think it was going to resonate when he started talking about the 2022 midterms being a referendum on democracy. And turned out that it might have helped Democrats in the midterm to be driving that message. Um, we don't know how it's going to play out this time, but I think it's important for the leader, of the, the world's still strongest democracy to be out there beating that drum. But can I, Sarah, I, what the question that comes to mind to me as I listen to Mo, and, it, and it, I think it's a, a hard one. And I mean, you having been in the Trump administration, like I'm really curious how to wrestle with this. Like, you know, Mo's describing, you know, you, it's smart for President Biden to come out there and as the strongest democracy in the world say, you know, we are a beacon to fight against these authoritarian regimes that are banding together and very dangerous. But like watching our politics in the United States in the last decade, like, <laughs> I mean, and a lot of people voting for President Trump, couldn't you argue, especially if you're an observer watching what's un what unfolded in the United States from abroad, couldn't you point to the United States and say, huh, like there's there's a country that's sort of flirting with and, you know, there are a lot of people who want an authoritarian style leader. Is that a reality that we have to face as we consider what kind of democracy we are? No. I, look, 
I think I have been as critical of Donald Trump on this podcast as anyone else, yes. maybe more so. Um, to say that we were flirting with authoritarianism, I think, diminishes what true authoritarianism really is. Our institutions were tested and they actually did their jobs especially the judiciary. And what you see in a lot of these other countries is a judiciary that is either not independent or not able to withstand the pressure against it. I mean, you want to say what saved our self-governing experiment in 2020? It was the judiciary, including Federalist Society judges, Trump-appointed judges. They were the ones who universally uh, ruled against all of these efforts to challenge the results of the election. However, if you take a large lens of history... For the last 70 years, we have seen the most peaceful time on planet Earth, potentially. And post-World War II, that death toll really starts decreasing, and it starts decreasing quite rapidly, and it keeps decreasing in this era of sort of Pax Americana, as it's called, right? This idea that um, when America becomes sort of the singular superpower through the end of the Cold War and then at, you know, post-Cold War, um, world conflict was at sort of an all-time low, deaths from world conflict, rather. We're seeing that fall apart. And it's falling apart at the same time that America is no longer having that role in the world. I think there are really healthy debates to have about what the correct role of America is in the world for our own interests. But you're missing something if you're not seeing what's happening globally as America recedes from that position. And the reasons for it, you know, the 2008 financial crisis was worldwide. When Mo talks about the Western democracies that have also been tested, I've always said Donald Trump isn't some unique phenomenon in America. And if it's not a unique phenomenon, then we have to come up with some non-American thing that caused the phenomenon. I think very clearly the 2008 financial crisis has a direct link to, um, to that distrust in institutions, distrust of elites, et cetera. So as America then started turning inward, becoming more isolationist, yeah, we are seeing a lot of these countries that are like, sweet, you know, the, the police aren't here anymore. So that's, I strongly agree with what President Biden said on this, continues to say on this, all of it. But is he out of step with where a lot of Americans are right now? Yeah. I, I want to I kind of turn to another pillar of our democracy, which is, is the the media, a free press, you know, which I've lived my career in. Um, and I think it's such an important institution in, in our democracy and democracies don't survive if you don't have a, a free press and a trusted press. Um, you know, there was that horrific October 17th explosion at a hospital in, in Gaza. Um, and, and I just want to, I want to play, um, some, some tape because, some of the early reports that were delivered on air and in print jumped to some conclusions about um, who was responsible. And, and here's one from the BBC. The Israeli military has been contacted uh, for comment and they have said that they are investigating. But, uh, you know, it is hard to see what else this could be, really, given the size of the explosion, other than an Israeli airstrike or several airstrikes, uh, because, you know, when we've seen rockets being fired out of Gaza, uh, we never see uh, explosions of that scale. And a lot of news organizations ran with, you know, Hamas's claim that Israel was at fault, even though there's there was no evidence behind that claim. And as we now know, there's evidence that the explosion was caused by um, by a rocket from inside Gaza. And, you know, there, there are a lot of people who are still trying to, you know, collect actual evidence. But this this was a 
this was an example to me of, of, of a media that, that continues to lose trust because they, they jump to conclusions and aren't really feeling the weight of their responsibility in a democracy anymore. And, and, and I'm deeply worried because it's a profession that I, I love. These are the moments also that I think Americans remember right? It's just more salient. So you have this moment, I think, about the hospital explosion. The origins of COVID uh, is another example that was maybe a little more slow moving, but another time where I think a lot of trust in, in the institution of media fell. And I think you're exactly right to think of it as an institution in this case. You know, we shouldn't lump all media organizations together and individual reporters and all that. But like when we're talking about the institutions that withstood the Trump era, for instance, and were tested during the Trump era, the media was absolutely one of the institutions that was most tested. It certainly survived, but I don't necessarily think it covered itself in glory during the Trump era. And there are sort of dumb stuff, and some people are going to find this less dumb than others, but the whole, and I was at the Department of Justice and and, um, a senior counsel to uh, the acting attorney general, deputy attorney general Rod Rosenstein um, during the Russia investigation. But the media coverage of the Russia investigation was silly at times. Donald Trump was about to be thrown into jail every 30 minutes if you were watching MSNBC. And it just wasn't based in fact. And it turned cable news that had already been this way. And I <laughs> believe me when I'm saying I'm not calling out MSNBC alone for this. But right, it, it was really the moment where cable news stopped being news and started just being entertainment at some point and telling you all the fun things that you wanted to hear about the world um, for each side. And I, I felt that very much about the hospital explosion, that for a lot of the institution, it undermined it enormously, not only to get the story wrong. Look, journalists get the story wrong sometimes. That's how it works. They're human. We're all human. It was that they all got it wrong in the same direction. It was that when they heard from the Palestinian Health Authority, a.k.a. Hamas, what had happened, there's all sorts of reasons why you may think that happened. I personally think it was just a lot of confirmation bias. It sounded credible. It sounded like it probably was right to them. Therefore, they weren't as skeptical of it as they would have been of other things. And you and I have had this debate, you know, the question over the 40 beheaded babies and all of the journalists who then pushed back on that when Biden said he'd seen photos of it. And of course, I agree that journalists should push back, should ask for evidence of something, not just take a government, you know, word for what happened. But why were they so skeptical of that and so quick to to push back on that and want evidence for that? But then when it came to the hospital explosion, nearly every major news organization ran with a headline that turned out not to be correct. I want to bring another voice into the conversation because we have a a guest on the show today. It's Dan Kennedy. He's a professor at Northeastern University School of Journalism, has a website podcast titled What Works in Local News with his research partner, Ellen Clegg. Dan, thank you for being here. Thanks for having me, David. I really want to bring you into this because I, like, I hear what Sarah is saying about sort of like confirmation bias being a real danger. To me, the reporters who were asking hard questions about when President Biden said in public remarks that he had seen images of children beheaded like that, that's a horrible thing to doubt someone's pain. But that I would have done that when I if I was still covering the White House. It's like the president says, this, where are these images? What is the evidence? Because those kind of remarks can 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 change the course of history. And I think journalists should have asked the same skeptical questions when they heard from Hamas that there was that hospital explosion. And, and I guess I just wonder, like, what what? 
What is at stake in moments like that? Well, I think the two stories are quite different because the story about uh, the horrific uh, but unproven beheading of the babies was kind of a slow-moving story. And by the time President Biden said that, a lot of reporters were thinking, well, we've been hearing about this for days. We haven't seen anything. Are, are you sure that you saw something, Mr. President? So I think that makes some sense. Uh, I think the hospital explosion, as Sarah says, it is an example of confirmation bias. You have this, this massive retaliatory strike going on. We've all seen the accidents that... Uh, took place in U.S. operations in Iraq and Afghanistan. It made some sense. But, you know, there's this old saying that grizzled old reporters say, if your mother says she loves you, check it out. And the fact <laughs> is, it rarely happens. Um, too often, we act as a conveyor belt for whatever we hear. This was a big breaking story. Uh, everybody wanted to get it up as quickly as possible. And we now know quite a bit about the process that went on at the New York Times. Certainly they could have reported in real time that there were reports of an explosion at this hospital. Uh, it's unclear exactly what's going on. We will keep an eye on this and let you know as the story develops further. But instead they went with a big headline that they knew was accurate, but it wasn't true. Uh, there's a lot of stories that are accurate, but not true. It is accurate that there was this explosion and the Palestinian authorities were saying it was Israel's fault. A very accurate statement. Uh, within an hour and a half to two hours, we find out that Israel is saying, no, that's not what happened. Our early intelligence shows that it appears to be uh, a rocket that was fired uh, by Islamic Jihad that went awry. And as, as the days have gone on, it's been over a week now, it's looking more and more like the original Israeli assessment is actually what happened. What really bothered me, I thought this was bad enough, and they, the New York Times ran an editor's note, uh, semi-apologized. Semi, semi. Semi. Yeah. Then we find out that there was this debate among Times editors, and the junior editors were saying, you know, let's hold back here. Let's not overcommit ourselves. And they were overruled by senior editors who said, no, we're just going to go with the headline. So this went from being one of those things where you weren't really realizing in real time what a mistake you were making to, in fact, you were being warned what a mistake you might be making. And did it anyway. And did it anyway, and it turned out it was a mistake. I mean, that's just really inexcusable. All right, we're going to keep talking about this when we come back. We're going to take a quick break. Uh, be back in a moment with Sarah Isger, Moa Lathy, and Dan Kennedy. Uh, we're going to keep talking about uh, this pillar of democracy, uh, journalism. And we'll get to uh, local journalism as well. You are listening to Left, Right, and Center. Thanks for listening to Left, Right, and Center. Is there someone in your life who could benefit from hearing a civilized discussion from all sides? Share the show with them. You can stream all episodes at kcrw.com LRC, straight from the KCRW app or wherever you listen to podcasts. All right, we're back again with more Left, Right, and Center. I'm David Green. I'm here with Sarah Isger and Moa Lathy. And 
our guest today, Dan Kennedy, who's a professor at the Northeastern University School of Journalism. Um, Mo, I want to give you a chance to, to weigh in here as, as you look at, uh, you know, what we were talking about with, with Dan and Sarah a moment ago, you know, how reporters at the White House ask skeptical questions about what President Biden said about images he said he had seen of, of beheadings, um, and then how the media jumped to conclusions after that, that hospital explosion in Gaza. Are, are you worried in moments like this about, about our media, about journalists, and about how they're, they're handling difficult stories like this? Uh, yeah, uh, I think they, look, I think they play such an important role. And unfortunately, I think for a lot of reasons, including the you know speed uh the bifurcation of uh, uh of media how all the many different ways people are consuming information these days um the role of social media uh, so many different reasons the pressures on journalists are more intense than you know when you were a cub reporter right and so it's even more important for them to take that extra beat and 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 verify. I want reporters who are covering stories that I care about to be skeptics. We need I don't want them to be cynics, but I need them to be skeptics. I want them to take that minute and question. Sometimes they do it brilliantly and uncover propaganda, uncover falsehoods, uncover mistruths. We need them to do that. But I worry that they are so focused right now on speed in an information ecosystem where the information is flying past us, completely unorganized and at a pace that none of us are accustomed to. And you feel like everyone else is going to jump and report this. So I better jump in the game too. Yeah. One of my biggest days to one of my biggest problems when Twitter was really taking off was watching how reporters use that. And I felt that way too often retweeting replaced reporting and, you know, people would caveat a retweet with woe if true. Right. (laughs) Yeah. That doesn't, when you're a journalist, that doesn't, that doesn't cut it. Which I think, I mean, Dan, Dan, that's, that's what I'm wondering. Like have, if we've lost the, the definition of what like true reporting is, um, I mean, I, I know I have so many colleagues at news organizations from, from CNN to the New York times, they're, they're amazing reporters. I mean, and they are doing their jobs well in exactly the way that I dream of them doing. I, I learned from them there, but, but then I look at the climate and I'm like, I don't know if they if they're the types of journalists that the people out there want anymore. And that's where I get worried about our democracy. You, you know, I'm worried, but I think the worries are exaggerated. I, I thought it was interesting that when uh, Sarah was being critical of the media, you original, you immediately reached for cable news. Friends don't let friends watch cable news. <laughs> um, but essentially, when people talk about the media, they often are using st- cable news is what they think of. And the formula is to keep you 
angry and upset and don't turn that dial. I think there's plenty of good, reliable journalism out there. There's probably more than there's ever been. Uh, we've got great national papers. We've got NPR. Uh, you know, the three big nightly newscasts on the networks, um, are, you know, they're short and a little bit superficial, but they're trying to get it right. And that is the closest thing that we still have to a mass medium. So I would not let the worst of what we're doing define everything. I think that would be a mistake. Well, I, I, I want to sort of end on a hopeful note. And, and Dan, I know you've been, you've been doing a lot of work studying local journalism. And, and I feel like the narrative for a while was, you know, we have so many smaller newspapers that have shut down and communities that, that don't have local journalists, you know, being able to hold leaders accountable and, and report the local stories. It's just you lose that sense of connection. But as I think about some of the pitfalls and mistakes at the national and international level, it's like the, the newspapers that are figuring out ways to survive and, and some have joined forces with, with public media stations. I mean, I look at a lot of the work that places like WBUR are doing, I mean, which is really just trusted reporting and, and real journalism. It's like, are, is what's happening at the local level setting an example for or a reminder of what journalism can and should be. That's right. And we're also seeing a lot of startups, mostly digital, mostly nonprofit. Uh, there are literally hundreds of them across the country. And the Boston area has been kind of a hotbed of this activity as the Gannett chain has slowly pulled out and closed a lot of its weekly papers. You know, one of the things that uh, my co-author and podcast partner, Alan Clegg, really believe is that uh, returning reliable local news and information to communities is something that can help overcome the polarization that we're dealing with. Um, you know, there's an old saying that there isn't a Republican or a Democratic way to pick up the trash. And, <laughs> and the hope is that when you figure out how to work with your neighbors who you may have very different political views on uh, with, and and help figure out how to solve important local problems and deal with crucial local issues, you may find that you had more in common than you thought you had. But that kind of re-sparking of civic engagement can't happen in the absence of local news. I mean, you, you know, you're lucky if you know who to vote for, for the select board or the city council or the school committee anyway. But if there's absolutely no source of local news to help you figure it out, you really have a problem. But we do have um, a renaissance going on. It's, it's not making up for what we've lost entirely, but it's growing. Uh, and I think that uh, it will continue to grow in the years to come. Moser, do you see potential for this? Because as I've been, I mean, I've been... I've been traveling the country a lot. I've been talking to people about, about gun violence, as we've talked about on this show. And, and what, what strikes me is when you come in hot and you just assume the two people disagree and you're like, well, what's your position? What's your position? That, that goes nowhere. But when you remind people who live in the same neighborhood or community of the things that they share, and it's like that even if they have different views to work out over guns like no one neither of these people no one in the room wants a school to be 
shot up and it's like they're scared for their kids. It's like you, you spend some time reminding people what they share. You can actually overcome some some stuff. And I, and I, I just don't know, is it unrealistic to think that some of that, if it's happening and if we can encourage it more at the local level, can that start to trickle up into our national politics or am I just being idealistic? So that's exactly what I was going to say, which is another problem that we, another reason that we have so much dysfunction, I think, in Congress and at this national level is that we've nationalized every issue. And so, and part of that is because we don't have local journalists who hold these congressmen to account for knowing their local issues. And so everything becomes a national issue. Uh, so absolutely. I mean, I, you know, when you ask people which news sources they trust the most, Always local news wins. Their local television station, their local paper beat out all of the nationals. I think the problem is a monetization problem a lot of the time, as you know, uh, the New York Times, for instance, moved away from ad revenue to subscription revenue. I work at the Dispatch. That's a subscription news um, news organization. So many are moving to subscriptions. You just saw local news not being able to compete in the same way. And um, but I'm, I'm thrilled to hear there's a renaissance. I think it's wildly important. And I think it absolutely can. I mean, the point about trash is uh, totally correct, although I always chuckle because, you know, except for the libertarians, right? Like, <laughs> <laughs> well, and, and, and I don't know if it helps bring us together. I don't know if it helps solve problems, but it can help remind people why they should care. And caring is an important part of a democracy if we want people to be involved and to care. I mean, that's where things we, One start. would hope. Yeah. Um, well, we've reached that, uh, that point in the show where we turn to our left, right, and center rants and raves. Dan Kennedy, I want to give you a chance to, to uh, participate with us. Is there something we didn't get to or something on your mind you want to rant or rave about? Yeah, I'd like to rant. Um... <laughs> <laughs> like the, you showed some real excitement there. Like, I, uh, I've been waiting I, for someone to ask me this question. I am excited. Um, Elon Musk, one year, one year ago, purchased Twitter. Uh, for far more than it was worth, and he has uh, taken its inflated value and driven it right into the ground over the past year, uh, while uh, enabling uh, troll accounts, enabling disinformation, uh, enabling some really ugly stuff. And uh, Twitter was always a problem. I mean, people called it the hell site long before Elon Musk bought it, uh, but it's gotten far worse under him. A slight rave during some of the big breaking news stories that we've seen the last couple of weeks. I've seen a few people on social media say, you know, Twitter's so bad, I'm going directly to news sites. Well, that's yes. not a bad thing. <laughs> oh, I like that. Yeah, you, you know how to play this rant and rave game. Yeah, Thank you, Dan. Really does. Yeah, Mo. Uh, I've got a rave born out of a rant. The horrific tragedy uh, in Maine this week. And I'm just tired. I'm just tired of hearing the stories. I'm tired of having to come on the show and talk about it. I'm tired of grieving. The last time the House voted to on an assault weapons ban, five members of my party voted no. One of them to, this week went home to Maine, Jared Golden, stood up at a press conference and said three words that you almost never hear a politician say. I was wrong. I was wrong. Whether or not you like his policy position. And I sure as hell do like his policy position. I think we would all be served better 
by more leaders who are willing to stand up and say those three words from time to time. Thank you. Sarah? Okay, well, to just go on a different topic, I realized we're in Boston and we're coming up on the 250th anniversary of the Boston Tea Party. As I'm sure everyone here knows, December 16th is just around the corner. But what you may not know is that the ships have already left from London. They packed up the crates. And yes, we have the Boston Tea Party. It's going to really happen. And I just want to remind everyone who's so into like, you know, watching the coronation of the king over there or arguing about Harry versus William and Meghan versus Kate. We don't like them. We don't like their system. They are the bad guys. And this year, the 250th anniversary, I just want everyone to remember that. Like, they're the bad guys. Quit being nice to our British folks over there. Well, speaking of being nice. <laughs> there goes um, our London yes, show. This is my... Yeah. <laughs> This is uh, this is my rave about kindness um, and and being forgiving. Uh, if you if you fly on a plane, I will plane, never forgive King George the Third. Yeah, I understand that. Um, <laughs> I, I caught this on social media from some people who posted it, and and then I then BuzzFeed has written about it. If you are on a plane and you are flying and you land in Salzburg, Austria, and you accidentally flew there thinking that you were going to Australia. There's actually a sign in the airport that says, sorry, this is Austria, not Australia. Need help? Please press the button. <laughs> and evidently, some people have said, and I have not confirmed this myself, but that there is someone who will help you and be caring and say that you're not an idiot um, and be like, <laughs> people make mistakes and like maybe there's a first time traveler and like there are all sorts of ways that I could see mixing that up probably, but it's happened a lot and they will find you a very affordable airfare to get from Salzburg to like Melbourne or Sydney. So I just use that as an example of, of human kindness. Um, <laughs> don't jump to ridicule. Don't assume that, that like, I mean, things happen. Um, okay. I, uh, I just want to thank you, Dan, for, for being here for our show. Um, uh, Dan Kennedy is a professor at the Northeastern University School of Journalism uh, he has a website and a podcast called What Works in Local News with his research partner, Ellen Clegg. And the two of you have a book coming out in January 2024. It is called What Works in Community News, Media Startups, News Deserts, and the Future of the Fourth Estate. Um, thanks for being here. Thank you so much. All right. I want to thank Sarah Isger and Moa Lathy and Dan Kennedy. Left, Right, and Center is produced by Mark K. Green. Our executive producer is Arnie Seipel. The show is recorded and mixed by Phil Richards. Todd M. Simon composed our theme music. Special thanks to Maggie O'Rourke, as well as our hosts here in Boston, WBUR and their staff, Stephen Davey, Candace Springer, Amy McDonald, Jules Wachlowick, Adam Strauss, and Chris Berrios for making today's show possible. Download and subscribe at kcrw.com slash LRC, the KCRW app, or wherever you find podcasts. Left, Right, and Center is produced and distributed by KCRW. Support for Left, Right, and Center comes from Odoo. If you feel like you're wasting time and money with your current business software or just want to know what you could be missing, then you need to join the millions of other users who switch to Odoo. Odoo is the affordable, all-in-one management software with a library of fully integrated business applications that help you get more done in less time for a fraction of the price. To learn more, visit odoo.com slash LRC. That's O-D-O-O dot com slash LRC. Odoo, modern management made simple. 
from PRX.